When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have a special guest on the show this week. Um, I actually, I believe the last time that I had a guest on the show was with Carrie Hench. Um, she was from the website tutorsandotherhistories.wordpress.com, and we talked about things in Showtime's The Tutors series that were inaccurate and that bothered us the most, so that was fun. But today's guest is Sari Graham, all the way from Canada. Now, you might recognize Sari's name from my Facebook page and my website. She's become a guest quiz creator on TutorsDynasty.com and has created some of the best quizzes for us, some of the most popular ones like the Henry VIII quiz and the Anne Boleyn quiz. And it's been a lot of fun to work more closely with Sari. I mean, not really in proximity, but in mind. (laughs) We're working closely together. So with that, I'm happy to introduce to you all Sari Graham. Hi, how are you? Hello! Thank you so much for coming to the show. I'm 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 really excited to to do this with you today. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. Well, with that, then, Sari, what is the theme for this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast? Well, today um, we're going to be discussing the Plantagenets and specifically um, the Wars of the Roses. I think a lot of people who have an interest in Tudor's history in general, they've heard of the Wars of the Roses or alternatively known as the Cousins Wars, but it's a bit of a gray area for a lot of people. Like, sure, we've heard of it, but we're not really sure how all of those dots connect between the Plantagenets to the Tudor's history that we love um, and how it connects back to Edward III. So what this is going to be today is basically just connecting those dots and bringing a little bit more clarity um, to this topic for a lot of people. All right, let's do this. So we're going to be talking about the Plantagenets and the ancestry that leads to the rise of the Tudors dynasty. So as Rebecca always says, sit back and relax and allow yourself to be transported back in time as we talk about in an exciting, albeit gray area of a really fantastic period of history. Thank you, Sari. So <laughs> I'm going to start off just by saying I'm not very well versed in the Plantagenet dynasty. Now, maybe I know enough that's, you know, just to embarrass myself when I'm trying to talk with somebody <laughs> about it. Um, but really, I'm fascinated by the Wars of the Roses. It's an intriguing part of history. Um, you know, when it, in my mind, when it ties into the Tudors, it, it ties into the paranoia of Henry VII and maybe Henry VIII. And, um, it's exciting just to see how how it all evolved. And of course, I also had an obsession with Elizabeth Woodville and Edward IV and how that all ties in. So I'm I'm really excited to hear what you have to say, Sari, and see if it um, helps open some more doors for me to want to research a little bit more. So you've you've put in a lot more research than I have into the Plantagenets in this part of the Reign of Kings, and so I am going to let you just kind of do your thing and teach me a little bit and teach everybody else who's not as familiar. 
All right. Well, I mean, anybody who has an interest in Tudor's history, you've probably heard the term the Wars of the Roses. It's sometimes also referred to as the Cousins Wars. And, you know, as I stated previously, this can be a really confusing period in history as there's a lot of people involved and there's a lot going on. And what adds to that confusion is most of these people have the same names. So if it wasn't difficult before, Let's throw in a bunch of people named Richard and try and figure that out. Um, so, you know, do the, the, this is an extensive detail of this period of history, and there's a lot of back and forth and up and down as the wheel of fortune turns for so many people involved here. And pretty much this chunk of history is is the 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 lead up to the Tudor's dynasty. There would be no Tudor's dynasty without the Wars of the Roses. Um, so it was kind of, I guess, in a way, a necessary evil. I don't know. It's, I don't know how I feel about saying that, but it's one of those things that it, it wasn't great, but it's led up to something that a lot of us mm -hmm. love. So yeah. you kind of have to take it for what it, what it is. Ultimately, it led to the union of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, but we're getting a little ahead of ourselves with regards to what we're going to be talking about today. So I guess the first thing is, who were the Plantagenets? They, the Plantagenets were actually a, a very powerful European family originating from Anjou, which is a, a duchy in France, and it was a prominent fife to the French crown. The word Plantagenet comes from Plantagenista, which is the Latin name for the yellow broom flower. It's actually a really pretty flower if you yeah, look it up. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, so um, the, the yellow broom flower was worn as an emblem by the Counts of Anjou. And in total, the Plantagenets ruled England for 331 years, which is a pretty big dynastic chunk of the monarchy of England. Um, it started with King Henry II in 1154, and it ended with King Richard III in 1485. As I mentioned before, this is where things get a little bit tricky because we know the, the name Plantagenet and it, it had a lot of meaning to a lot of people. But Plantagenets can be sort of subdivided into four parts. What? Yep. <laughs> because like I said, it's not confusing enough. We have to <laughs> break it down a little bit more. So there's, so there's not just Plantagenets. Well, they're all Plantagenets, but... It's like there's different branches. It's, it's one tree with multiple branches. Okay, I like that. Really. So there were the Angevins, which were three kings of England, Henry II, Richard I, and John. Okay. Then there were just, I guess, the general Plantagenets, which were five kings, Henry III, Edward I, Edward II, Edward III, and Richard II. And then there was the House of Lancaster, which had three kings, Henry IV, Henry V, and Henry VI. And then the House of York, which also had three kings, Edward IV, technically Edward V, and Richard III. So all of these rulers are Plantagenet, but not all of them are Angevins, not all of them are Lancaster, not all of them are York, but they're all Plantagenets. You follow me? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, it helps that I have words in front of me to follow along. So I'll make sure when we're done with this to post this as an article too, because that might help people if they want to listen. You know, read it while they're they're listening. That might help too. Yeah, for sure. 
So, I mean, what does a 30-year-long war have to do with King Edward III? I mean, by this point, King Edward III had already been dead for 78 years. So, I mean, how, what, what does that have to do with anything, right? right? Well, I mean, it doesn't really have anything to do with good old King Ned, but it does involve his children. So let's review here a little bit. Edward III and his wife, Philippa of Hainaut, had 13 children. Wow. Let that sink in for a second. <laughs> That's a lot of babies. Children, like, God bless this woman. <laughs> I can't even imagine. However, for the sake of expediency, we're actually only focused on four of their surviving sons. Lionel of Antwerp, who is the Duke of Clarence. John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. Edmund of Langley, Duke of York. And Thomas of Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester. It was the descendants of these four brothers that would spark what we know as the Wars of the Roses. So, diving in, we're going to talk about Lionel here at the beginning. Lionel of Antwerp was the third son of Edward III, but he was the, the second to survive infancy. As we know, way back then, it was almost more common for babies to die than it was for them to survive. And having 13 children didn't mean a whole lot if 13 of them died. So, sounds like a lot, but ultimately... It doesn't actually produce a lot. Mm. So he was the second to survive infancy after his elder brother, Edward of Woodstock, who is also known as the Black Prince, but that was a nickname that he did not earn during his lifetime. We're going to have uh, to go back to that name at some point here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It, it ties in a little bit later, too. So okay, perfect. I'll come back to that. So Edward, uh, the Black Prince, he actually predeceased his father, the king, in 1376. So Lionel is the, second, the third surviving son. Lionel and his first wife, Elizabeth de Borough, who was the first Countess of Ulster, they had one daughter, also named Philippa, who later became the fifth Countess of Ulster in her own right. It's through his daughter, Philippa, and her descendants that the female line, or at least what I refer to as the female line, of York descends, the House of York. Hmm. Um, Richard Plantagenet, who was the third Duke of York, gets his claim to the throne via his mother, Anne Mortimer, who was a granddaughter of Philippa, therefore a great-granddaughter of Lionel, and a great-great-granddaughter of King Edward III. So interestingly enough, Richard, uh, Richard Plantagenet, the Duke of York, his claim actually also comes through his father's family as um, he was a grandson of Edward III's fourth son, Edmund of Langley, Duke of York. So Richard Plantagenet has, from, from both sides of his parents, he, he has strong claims, making him like a double threat. So Richard's father was the third Earl of Cambridge, and he was the second son of Edmund of Langley and his first wife, Isabella of Castile. So Richard inherited the Duchy of York from his uncle, Edward of Norwich, second Duke of York. Yeah, okay. it's definitely a little bit confusing if you're not as, you know, I'm only familiar with the major players. And when I say major, for me, that's Edward the Fourth, and, yeah. uh, you know, Richard yeah. the Third, or, you know, but this yeah. is, wow, yeah, there's a yeah, lot. It's like that's their, going their paths to the crown can be... It's not a straight road, and it's not it's not a clear road. It's very foggy until you really dive in and, and figure out, okay, who's coming from where and why. Well, and it's sad because they're all related, and they're yeah. all fighting for something, but yeah. their family fighting over one, you know, prize, essentially. Yeah. 
the cousins were. It's it's a very well named period of history because that's exactly what it was. Like all of these people were not necessarily first cousins, but they were all related. And they were killing each other essentially. Yep. Ugh. Okay, so in summation. <laughs> On that sad note. Yeah. Richard Plantagenet, the third Duke of York, had excellent ancestry from both of his parents' families, which is where the Yorks get, in my opinion, a very strong claim to the throne. Through his mother, he was a three times great-grandson of King Edward III, and through his father, he was a great-grandson of Edward III. It was this heritage that would be passed along to his son, the future King Edward IV, which would be used as his claim as the first Yorkist king. Um, I think prior to me diving into this, like myself, before before we decided to do this um, podcast together, I didn't really realize what Edward the Fourth claim was. I just figured, oh, okay, well they overthrew Henry the Sixth, and that's that. He's king now. Right. Like, I didn't he realize he legitimately had a right to do that. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I hope I'm not, you know, going, getting ahead of you here. Richard, Third Duke of York. At one point, was he named successor to Henry VI? I think it was talked about. Okay. Um, but, you know, again, he's a Yorkist, and the the Lancasters had the throne, and they had had the throne for quite a while. Okay. So it was, like, possible, but I, I think with all the movings and politicking, they were like, we can't let that happen. Okay. I, and I was wondering, because I read so many Philippa Gregory books that I thought maybe it was confusing fact yeah. and fiction. All right. So now we're going to move over to the Lancaster side of things. Let's let's keep it a little balanced here. We're going to all talk about the, the descendants of John of Gaunt, because his his descendants also split down two lines. Um, John of Gaunt, he's probably the most well-known son of Edward III. Again, it's a name that I think a lot of people have heard and they're like, oh yeah, John of Gaunt, like John of Gaunt, like, okay, moving on. Um, <laughs> like that name is important, but I'm not sure why. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like stash that away for a rainy day. We'll figure that out later. Um, so he was the fourth son of Edward III and Philippa of Hainote, but he was the third to survive infancy. Um, there's actually an inordinately large suit of armor that's housed in the Tower of London. I've seen it myself, and it is absolutely monstrous. And the claim is that the suit of armor belonged to John of Gaunt because he himself was a very tall man for the time. But it's actually been disproven that that armor was made a very long time after he passed. And I think the armor originated in Germany, so it was not his. As fun as it would be to have something like that tied to John of Gaunt. It's not his armor. He didn't wear it. He wasn't even alive when it was made, so oh, not his. <laughs> so John of Gaunt, it's through his first and his third wives that the claimants from House of Lancaster uh, descend. Um, John of Gaunt and his first wife, uh, Blanche of Castile, were the parents of King Henry IV who, or, or Henry Bolingbroke, as he was known prior to his ascension. And he actually overthrew his cousin, uh, King Richard II, in September of 1399. So remember earlier when I mentioned the Black Prince? Yeah. Edward of Woodstock, predeceasing his father. So Richard II was actually the son of the Black Prince. 
And because Edward of Woodstock predeceased his father, the king, little 10-year-old Richard II succeeded his grandfather upon the death of Edward III. Oh, man. And we know how that happened, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) History is ripe with great stories about children coming to the throne, right? So this made John of Gaunt and Blanche of Castile the ancestors of Henry V and Henry VI by their son, Henry IV. So sounds simple, right? Like, okay, (laughs) their son, he overthrew his cousin. He's the new king. And then his son and grandson, they also followed. Sounds simple. We're done, right? No, we're not done. It's never that easy, my friends. It's uh, through John of Gaunt's third marriage that things get a little bit more complicated. John of Gaunt's third wife, Catherine Swinford, another name that I think a lot of people hear and throw around, but they don't really understand the significance that this woman had in her lifetime and afterwards. She was a fantastically interesting woman, and if you get the chance to read more about her, I would really recommend it because... I just, I have a new respect for Catherine Swinford. She wasn't just another mistress, you know. She she was a, a woman of substance, and, and she deserves that recognition. But anyways, so Catherine was John's mistress for quite a number of years prior to their marriage. And they had four uh, illegitimate children, three sons and one daughter. Uh, later on in life, Richard II actually legitimized these children, his cousins, um, when they were adults, long after John and Catherine got married. But later on, they were they were legitimized, but they were barred from the succession by their half-brother, Henry IV. However, when has a parliamentary statute ever stopped somebody from pursuing <laughs> the crown? Again, yeah, there's like, plenty of examples in history where it's just like Parliament says no, too bad. I'm going to do what I want. Exactly. And, you know, that, that whole scenario, though, there, it really intrigues me why Richard II decided to legitimize his cousins at all. You know, I know it's a very, you know, as a as a ruling king, it's a very strange thing for him to do. Why are you creating competition for yourself? <laughs> right. Really? Like, like, come on. That's that's what it is. It's interesting. I'm glad he did it. I'm not complaining. Yeah. But at the same time, from a practical standpoint, it's like you have to imagine what his counselors must have been saying. Like, no, man, don't do this. Like, it's not going to end well. Don't do it. And he's right. like, oh, oh friend, they're my cousins. They're blood. They're good. Right. He's it's my cousin. It's fine. <laughs> it's almost like he was too immature to understand what kind of conflict that was going to cause. I think... I think calling Richard II immature <laughs> is a very um, valid way to explain I wanted the purity of his rule. Right? I was like, what's the right word that I can use for him? Useless is another good one. Useless. You know? Spoils. I feel it's, it's something that I would have to research more thoroughly myself, but I feel like there's a lot of parallels between the rule of Richard II and his ancestor, Edward II. They both come from very powerful, like their fathers, or in Richard's case, his grandfather, very powerful men who reigned before them. And then you've got these heirs, and they're just like, well, whatever. Right. So like, my fourth chest, and I'm going to play. Like, it's just, they never took it seriously. No, and there were, there were serious repercussions for their lack of control. So anyways, um, we're going to talk about John of Gaunt's first son with Catherine Swinford, also named John. So 
going forward, if I just, I'm just going to say John, and that's referring to the son, and then John of Gaunt will be John of Gaunt, just to keep things a little bit clear. Okay. So John Beaufort was the first Marquess of Somerset, and he later he became the first Earl of Somerset, and he was the eldest of the four children between John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford. He and his siblings took the name of Beaufort, probably because John of Gaunt had a lordship of the area of Beaufort in Champagne, France. So, I mean, if, is Beaufort ringing any bells for you, sounding a little familiar? Uh, it does to me. <laughs> it does, because it's John's granddaughter, Margaret Beaufort, Countess of Richmond and Derby, who passed her claim to the throne on to her son, Henry Tudor. Ooh, and the scandal begins. It does. <laughs> the plot thickens. Right. So this lineage makes Henry, gives Henry Tudor his claim, and it makes him a two-times great-grandson of John of Gaunt and therefore a three-times great-grandson of King Edward III. However, the problem with his claim is that it's, it's, it was often met with criticism because it was viewed as coming from the illegitimate line, despite the fact that the Beaufort children had been legitimized, not only by Richard II in Parliament, but also by Pope Boniface IX in 1396. However, people, you know, back then, claims of the throne, legitimate, not legitimate, whatever. It's like a dog with a bull, and they won't let it go. We're going to keep hearing about this. It's going right. to keep coming up. And I suppose the biggest part of the argument is the Henry IV part. He said that they couldn't be part of the succession, correct? Yeah, because they were his half-siblings, and so he acknowledged their legitimacy, but he still kind of kept that dark cloud over them, oh. saying, like, well, you're technically legitimate, but not legitimate enough for it to matter. So, um, that being said, now let's focus on Thomas of Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester, who was the fourth son. Um, his descendants, again get their claim mostly through, again, what I refer to as the female line, because it involves his daughter, not directly through sons. Um, so, and, it, and because, um, because it's coming through a female line, again, it's met with criticism, and that's not a valid claim. Women can't rule. They're weak. They can't handle power, blah, 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 blah all of that. So we're still, we're still in a period of rule of Richard II. And in 1397, Thomas of Woodstock, who was the uncle of Richard II, was attainted as a traitor, as the leader of the Lord's Appellant, um, which was a group of men, nobles, who sought to impeach some of the king's favorites in order to curb what they felt was tyrannical and reckless rule. Again, a parallel with Edward II, because Edward II's wife and her lover did the mm -hmm. same thing you're not ruling properly you're not looking after your barons you're not looking after england and we're going to do something about it something right. needs to be done um on behalf of king richard ii thomas de Mowbray, who was the first duke of norfolk actually murdered the uncle of the king like can you imagine what how, how, how would that how would that even fly like you've murdered the uncle of the king you'd think you'd get your butt thrown into the tower but instead, well, you're, yeah. you've done the king a great favor. Well, I never knew that. I never knew that piece of history. Yes, yeah, it, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't a nice death. <laughs> well, okay. Now I'm gonna have to do some research. Yeah. So, 
So it was through Thomas's daughter, Anne. Um, she actually married into the powerful Stafford family. Oh, I know that name. It's Yeah. So it's through that line that Thomas's descendants get their claim. Anne's son, Humphrey Stafford, was created the Duke of Buckingham in 1444. And due to the fact of his mother's ancestry, it actually gave him royal blood as a cousin to King Henry the sixth, sorry. Um, so Humphrey Stafford married Lady Anne Neville, but not that ne Anne Neville. This okay. Anne Neville. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, like Queen nope. Anne? Okay. Yeah, not that same Anne Neville. Um, and the interesting thing here is that Anne Neville herself was the daughter of Joan Beaufort, which again comes right back to John of Gaunt. Hmm. So are you still with me here? <laughs> I'm following. So Humphrey Stafford was succeeded by his son, another Henry, in 1460 as the second Duke of Buckingham. His wife, so Henry Stafford's wife, was the Lady Catherine Woodville. Oh, okay. To Edward the Fourth, Queen Elizabeth. Yes, and he was mad about having to marry her. Oh yeah. So it was this Henry who was actually implicated in the disappearance and likely murder of the princes in the tower in the summer of 1483. Okay. King Richard the Third later had uh, Henry Stafford executed on the second of November in 1483 for his role in, ta-da, Buckingham's Rebellion. Henry's young. Sorry. You must be pretty important to get your own rebellion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that rebellion also implicated Elizabeth Woodville and Margaret Beaufort. They were all working together to get rid of Richard. Oh, okay. Now this sounds a little bit more familiar to me. Yeah. Okay, okay, but gotcha. Henry was the one who lost his head for it. I mean, I think, yes. I think Margaret was attainted and she lost her titles there for a brief period of time. Yeah, I think her husband got all of her land and stuff instead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Stanley didn't like he was like, Well, oh, I'm still gonna remain neutral. I'm not gonna do anything with this. <laughs> These Buckinghams um, had a way of losing their head, didn't they? Oh yeah, and we'll touch on that again in a minute. Okay. Oops, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So um after the execution of Henry Stafford, he actually left a young son named Edward. And it, it's said that Edward, um, he was a, a I think a young child, he was hidden away with various friends or relatives, um, keeping him away from King Richard III, because, I mean, if Richard III has taught us anything, is that he's not really against getting rid of children who stand mm -hmm. in his way. Um, take that for what it's worth. <laughs> so, But um, after the victory of Henry Tudor at, at Bosworth, he, was, he made Henry, sorry, Edward Stafford, um, a Knight of the Order of the Bath as the Duke of Buckingham in 1485. Hmm. So, you know, you'd think, okay, well, his father was attainted as a traitor and was executed. So when you, when you have a, an attainder against you, you lose all your titles, you lose your land and your money and everything that you own. But Henry Tudor actually had that reversed for Edward. And so Edward Stafford became the third Duke of Buckingham in November of 1485. Um, anybody who watched this series, The Tudors, will know who Edward Stafford is. He was in the first two episodes of the first season. Um, and I think in the show it was portrayed that his daughter was caught 
hanging out with Charles Brandon. <laughs> that was a nice way to put it. Yeah. Hanging yeah. Out. Spending a little too much personal time with uh, <clears throat> Charles Brandon. But uh, that, that's a bit of an error. Liberty on in place of the show. All right. But anyways, if, if you're going to think of, if you want to put a, a face to the name, I guess use use that example. That's who he was. The blonde-haired guy. Yes, and he was very, very fiery and had a lot to say. Arrogance. Yes, yes, typical, typical Stafford. Yes. Um, so, so he became the third Duke of Buckingham. Okay. And he also had great lineage, like Richard Plantagenet did, because he got it from both sides, not from both of his parents, but his father. Both of his father's parents had that dual line. Um, he was a three times great grandson um, of Edward the Third through both Thomas Woodstock and through John of Gaunt. Um, his father uh, was a descendant through Anne Neville, who was the granddaughter of John of Gaunt, and then his father's father was a grandson of Thomas of Woodstock. So it's so it's it's sort of due to this ancestry as well as him having a penchant for rebellion and treason. King Henry VIII had really no problem in ordering his execution in 1521 and snuffing out this vein of Plantagenet blood that right. we know that Henry VIII was worried about and that Henry VII was definitely worried. Yeah. So. Well, even later when it came to Reginald Pole too, even then he was still after that Plantagenet blood. Yep. Yeah, and. I mean, Reginald Pohl had, he had the blood, like he very, well, definitely, he had a, a legitimate claim, I suppose, aside from him being um, in the church. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like it, it was definitely on the radar of Henry VIII and Henry VII that there are Plantagenets out there and, and that this could be a problem. Um, it's interesting, too, because the execution of Edward Stafford um, we know that Henry VIII later in life kind of went on an execution spree, so to say. He he had a lot of people executed for a lot of not good reasons. Mm -hmm. But Edward Stafford, it's been said that it was probably the only execution that Henry VIII ordered that was on good grounds. Like he had, there, good there reason. was good reason to condemn him. And he was guilty of of plotting the king's death and talking about the king's death and, and he did do it whereas that, that kind of suggests that a lot of the other ones really died needlessly yeah and really at the beginning of henry the eighth's reign i mean he that didn't execute as many people in that and you know from 1509 till when was buckingham executed 1521 20, or 22 yes. so so there was, he had um, Edmund and Dudley right away after he came to the throne in about 1510. And then he had Edmund de la Pole in like 1513. Mm -hmm. And then I think there was a long break before the third Duke of Buckingham was executed. Yeah, yeah. Because it then, was, things had kind of settled down. And, and I think, um, I know in, in this show, The Tudors, again, it portrays Edward's daughter as having a, relationship with Charles Brandon. So that right. didn't happen. <laughs> but I think there was a snub somewhere where somebody was involved with yes. a sister or a niece. Yes, it and was so, it was his sister. Um the yeah. third Duke of Buckingham was accused his sister was accused of being a mistress to Henry the Eighth. 
and I got found out and she got sent away to a nunnery, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then wasn't oh. she pulled out of the nunnery, or am I thinking of something else? Oh, I don't really. It's been a while since yeah. I've read that. I think that's what I did my first Tudor summit on. It was one of the scandals of Tudor court, and that was one of the stories. And I wish I could remember how it all – I just remember, yeah. of course, she yeah. got sent away, and the husband, her husband was embarrassed, and I think he left court for a while, too. And mm-hmm. and it's funny, like, when, when we say, like, how scandalous – the Tudor courts were. And it's really like the scandal. Sure. Somebody sleeping with somebody else's wife, that's scandal worthy. But I I think the Tudors themselves kind of court scandal just because of the nature of the dynasty and how they came to the throne, you know, surrounded by Plantagenet blood. Like, are you really, do you really think that this is going to be calm and smooth sailing? (laughs) Like Something's going to happen. Someone's going to blink and something is going to happen. And so I think for people to view Certain things within the Tudor court, whether it's Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward, Mary, Elizabeth, whatever, it's like, well, that's kind of, it's kind of what it's about. Yeah. It wouldn't be so fascinating if it was just like, okay, well, the king died and his son succeeded him and then he died, so his sister succeeded him and then everybody lived happily ever after. Like, without the scandal, we don't have the interesting aspects of this history. That's and while true. I'm sure it was not nice for the contemporaries living it at the time, it's what it's the icing on the cake for us now. I agree. That's yeah. why we we're all so fascinated by it. There's just so much to be. T- and just when I think that I have a good grasp of what I enjoy the most about the Tudors or the Plantagenets, that's when something else will come along and change my mind and go, oh, wait, now I'm obsessed with this. Yeah, that's kind of how my my interest in all of this um, started. I was a, I was a child when I first had a taste of the Tudors. Um, my, my first introduction to it was Princess Elizabeth, the later Elizabeth the first. I think I was only about 12 years old. Um, and then it, it, it was just a ripple effect from there. Like I would study it. I remember I had a book of Elizabeth the first, like when she was a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the back, it, it gave you some some historical information in Henry the Sixth and his six wives. Like, oh my God, he had six wives. That's crazy. <laughs> and it was actually a teacher at school who who taught me the rhyme of divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And I was like, wait, what? Like, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept reading about anything I could find about um, Elizabeth, Princess Elizabeth, Elizabeth Tudor, whatever. I kind of just went nuts for it. And I think I was thirteen years old when I read my first book by David Starkey. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it just, it, it was just ripples in the pond from there. Like, okay, so this is pretty interesting, but like, let's find out more about those six wives of her father. So now we're in the next ring here and we're going to learn about this. Okay. Well, you know, why was Anne Boleyn executed or why was Anne of Cleves divorced? Like, let's, let's just branch out here. Like, it's just, ripples in a pond for me. Like I, I focus on one part and then I keep expanding on it so that I can tie it all back together. Right. Yeah. It's so fun. I just, you know, the history. So I know, uh, I posted on, Oh, it might've been Instagram today, a picture of a map that I just bought. And I think I showed it to you. Yes. And I sat here yesterday with it sprawled out on my kitchen table. Um, 
looking at the map um, with the buildings along the Thames and trying to figure out, you know, how far it would have been for somebody to travel from one location to another. And would they have gone by horse or would it have been quicker to go by river? And to be able to look at it on a map really gave me a whole new insight to what London looked like in 1520. Yes. And I and I can imagine, you know, even what it was like through the end of Queen Elizabeth's reign, but it, just to have that tangible map in front of me to look at it, just mm-hmm. it, it blew my mind. So now I'm obsessed with maps. <laughs> yeah, it's really I I like that. Like I I would find that interesting too. I remember I was reading something about um um like the the up like up up north in York. I think it was the Kingmaker. They were talking, I was reading about the Kingmaker, um, Duke of Warwick. And I, I Google mapped York to London. And then I clicked the, like, the walking option because there's no, like, by horseback option. Right. I do that too. And I remember just going, like, oh my God. Like, if I was, if I was a queen, a queen consort at the time, or even a queen regnant, whatever. I would never go on progress. Never. Right. I'm not doing long this. Ride. No, I'm not doing this. Like I, oh my gosh, that distance on horseback or in a carriage. No, thank you. Can you imagine? Uh, they'd have to have a lot of cushions in there for, you know, for the king or the queen. It just seems awful. It just seems miserable. So back to our original discussion here. <laughs> I mean, based on everything that we've said, it seems that everybody had a blood claim to the throne of England. Yeah. The question is, really, whose claim was the strongest? And, you know, I, I'm not speaking in definite terms here. I'm just going, this is my opinion. But I think the Yorks had it simply because Richard Plantagenet was a, a great grandson of Edward III through his father. And that made him the closest related male line descendant. And it was the marriage of his granddaughter, Elizabeth of York, to Henry Tudor that really cemented all of that. It cemented Henry Tudor's claim because a lot of people felt that his was invalid because of the legitimacy, non-legitimacy thing. And Elizabeth of York being the eldest child of Edward IV. And, a, and for a while there, a lot of people felt that the, the throne should have gone to her because her brothers disappeared. It kind of brings it all together at the end where... Yeah. It, it ended. It was the union of the houses of York and Lancaster, and that's where the the Tudor rose, the red rose, and the white rose together brings it all together. And at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, we've got two sides here, two and like technically two enemy sides, Lancaster and York. Everybody has strong claims, and that's great. Um, but we're we're going to finish this now, and going forward their descendants had had both claims from both royal families or royal houses rather and then it's crazy to think that that combination of lancaster and york created henry the 8th yeah and then he kind of you know goes back in time a little bit and starts you know killing people off just because of a, a blood claim that goes back you know i mean other than other than edward stafford I don't think anybody else was really bothered by it. I think the Dillapoles kind of got involved after after he started going after people. Like if he had just left well enough alone, mm-hmm. I think things might have been a little different. I don't think that's not to say I don't think he would have encountered problems from the Plantagenet side of things, but um, he wouldn't be viewed so negatively as he is 
if he had just kind of accepted that he has, you know, distant related cousins and it is what it is. I mean, that that's what they had to do decades before him. Like, do you think Henry V sat on the throne, you know, plotting the murder of his cousins just because they're also Plantagenets? Like, yeah, that's what always makes me think that it's the Wars of the Roses, that history of being so close to him that made him become so paranoid when it came to um, legitimate heirs to the throne. Yeah, and and I mean, there there were it, it wasn't just a, a back and forth of you know. I'm the king. No, I'm the king. It, there, there were battles. This was a civil war. There were battles fought. People did die. People were executed without cause. Right. Thank you, Richard III. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it was it was a civil war. Again, I guess maybe you might be able to parallel that against, you know, going way, way back to the Empress Matilda and King Stephen. This is a civil war between cousins. Again, right. first cousins. Civil war. Parts of England favored Stephen. Parts of England favored Matilda. And it was the same thing with the Wars of the Roses, except I think with the Wars of the Roses, there were many more incidences of people arbitrarily changing sides when when that wheel of fortune turned and suddenly the Lancasters are on the bottom and the Yorks are on the top. Okay, well, maybe we should switch sides. Yeah. Looking at you, Stanley family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were notorious for that. So it's like... It's like it just repeats itself. Like again, the wheel just keeps spinning, and in the same, the same problems keep coming up and going away, and keep coming up and going away. And people so it's never. Really, it's really interesting that like the parallels. I always feel like people don't. People don't learn from history. We're so often told that history repeat, repeats itself, but yet we still end up becoming part of history, even though we knew it was coming. Yep. These guys should have known that this was kind of, okay. Just recently, there was a lot of infighting. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Sari, for for going over all of this because I know the uh, everything after Edward the Third can be very confusing. Yeah. Um, now we know, you know, that it was split up basically between his four sons and the descendants of those four sons are the ones that essentially started the Wars of the Roses. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. That's pretty much his Edward the Third's grandchildren and great grandchildren. It was those two generations that really things seemed to pick up. I mean, his Edward the Third's four sons, as far as I understand it, there weren't any major beefs between those four men. Hmm. Like you know, it wasn't, you know, John of Gaunt raising an army going against Lionel of Antwerp. Like, it just, that just didn't happen. It was, it was, you know, 78 years after the fact. Right. That, that stuff really kind of started to get a little hairy there. Well, thank you so much for, for filling us all in and, and teaching, teaching me today um, so that I understand it a little bit better because it is confusing. So thank you for all the research you put into it. Yeah, no problem. I mean, I enjoyed it too. And, and I'm, I'm a forever student. I will always look for ways to learn. And I mean, it was just, it was just maybe 10 days ago that I realized what the difference was between the Angevins and Plantagenets. Right. Like I knew that they were connected, but I didn't realize that, you know, the Angevins were Plantagenets, but not all Plantagenets were Angevins. It's, it, that just has to go with the, the Duchy of Anjou. And after that was lost, Looking at you, King John. They <laughs> so, were no longer Angevin kings of England. They were just Plantagenet kings of England. 
So the moral of the story is keep reading. Always keep reading. Ask questions. If you're not sure, keep looking it up. Find more sources. If you find something that contradicts, research both sides. If something says this happened, but then another source says, no, this happened instead, research both and, and form your own opinion. Don't just don't just regurgitate what Wikipedia tells you. Right. Don't just regurgitate something you read in a certain historical fiction genre of books by a certain author. <laughs> that wasn't a strong so, hint. It's, it's so much. It's there's so much there, and it's just I don't know. Like I would be happy researching this stuff in my spare time. Like just because like it's it's entertaining to me. It's nourishing to me, and I like to learn. Yeah. And then I like to talk about things that I'm passionate about. So doing this was really exciting. And I, I would love to do it again with you. Well, thank you so much, Sari, for joining me today. And um, hopefully we'll do this again in the future. Yes, for sure. Thanks so much for having me.